Well, we've beaten the odds. This is our 100th show. When you think about it, we should probably wait to celebrate until our 104th show, because that would be the full two years. But what with the handicap of our bleak and off-putting premise and our weird production schedule, plus the unlikability of at least two of the hosts and the near-total failure of our uncorporate masters to sell even a handful of advertisements on our show, we need to celebrate now, in case the whole thing explodes like a series of inexplicable oil drums in a Rambo movie. And we share this anniversary with another day that will also live in infamy known to many of you as Granddad's 9-11, Pearl Harbor. So, just like the reluctant Yamamotos that we are, we went against our own code of honor, risking our home islands for a Pyrrhic victory, and handpicked this week's movie. Now, last year we punished ourselves by hate-watching the Michael Bay barf-fest and softcore Melrose Place abomination, Pearl Harbor, a World War II movie predicated on the audience never having heard of World War II. This year, in order to keep Adam from celebrating December 7th by watching Rocky IV, I put my hand on the scales, and we bring to you one of the daddest of all dad war movies, Tora Tora Tora. These days, even the simplest to explain geopolitical event is a Attributed by the 50 million lazy boy pundits who dicksplain politics to each other online, to the behind-the-scenes machinations of the soul-dead capitalist overlords and immoral Swiss bankers and bunny-marrying Texas oil barons and jackbooted Illuminati police staters working on behalf of the unnamed shadowy forces that are maybe Masons, maybe Jews, that wield the bony-fingered hand of whatever made-up sinister global superstructure these increasingly mainstreamed pinheads prefer to substitute for the depressing-to-admit combination of chance, incompetence, and short-sighted avarice that really govern most human affairs. But in 1970, when this film was made, even in spite of the ongoing slide into disillusionment prompted by the FUBAR Cold War proxy and colonial misadventure in Vietnam, most American moviegoers still believed that the USA did the right thing, told the truth, had a collective sense of honor, was the moral compass of the world, and crucially, never screwed the pooch. So Tora 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 was a different beast, an extremely even-handed portrayal of both the clumsy misjudgment of the American command structure and the overreaching strategery of the Japanese military that together produced this world-altering sneak attack. Even more than the shocker of U.S. ineptitude must have been the intimate and sympathetic half of the movie we spend with the Japanese, inside their Navy culture, watching their anxiety convert first to a massive triumph that then disappears in storm clouds of a foreshadowed cataclysm. In fact, two Japanese directors, Kinji Fukasaku and Toshio Masuda, are co-credited alongside Richard Fleischer, deftly hemming their side of the both sides of this film. It still packs a wallop. It's not a perfect movie, as we'll see, even though in 1970 they still had enough old vintage airplanes and other hardware that they could just fling it around like Pete Townsend smashing 1964 SG Juniors like they grew on trees. But it's innovative, it's precedent-establishing, and a respected classic. It's also our 100th film. You want a confirmation, Captain? Take a look. There's your confirmation. Today on Friendly Fire, Tora, Tora, Tora. Welcome to episode 100 of Friendly Fire, 
In my several years of recording, I have never seen a war movie podcast that is so crowded with infamous falsehoods and distortions on a scale so huge that I never imagined until today that anyone on this planet was capable of listening to 100 episodes of it. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. I, lo- I love whatever accent that was that you were doing, Ben. I guess it's the Secretary of State that, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that like, the, the excoriates the Japanese diplomats at the end of the movie. I recognize the speech. Was this yeah. film funded by the estate of Colonel Bratton? <laughs> he really is the unsung hero of World War II. They he? really make him look good. <laughs> <laughs> Liked him a lot. Yeah, well, I mean, trying to trying to imagine what a 1970 audience would think about this, it, it clearly set itself up to, I guess, debunk some myths or to install some myths about Pearl Harbor and the American uh, leadership leading up to it that I, yeah. that maybe was shocking and interesting to the people at the time. I, I was, I, did you watch the preview to this movie? It's one of the things I love doing before watching a friendly fire <laughs> movie is watching the preview. No, I didn't even know there were previews. The preview to this like film, was, film is trailer? like, yeah, it's like, we're going to, we're going to tell the true story. We're going to like, we're going to give you the straight dope about what really happened. And I'm like, oh, well, this is going to be a good thing. We're going to, we're <laughs> going to like, this is going to cast a lot of the players involved in a really good light. This is not that movie at all. No. It makes a lot of people look really bad. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. There are very few people on our side that appear to be know what they're doing but to answer your question do you think people went to this film expecting like oh goody like finally we're gonna get to know and we'll feel better at the end and then they walk out of the film feeling like total shit well right we've watched (laughs) quite a few war movies from 1970 and compared and contrasted them by now and 1970 we're in the middle of a war in vietnam and it's late enough in Vietnam War that that there's an anti-war world. And so all these movies are kind of standing in for what the popular culture was wrestling with. And what is this movie? Uh, what, I, what, I, what I can't do and what I don't think we can do is go back to 1970 and, and know what people thought about the Pearl Harbor story. I guess probably what it was was that it still was a day that lived in infamy that that America just was a sleeping giant who was just sitting there peacefully nursing our babies and and planting uh, flower gardens. And then the the treacherous Japanese arrived. And this movie was showing us that there was a lot more going on, that we understood what was happening and kind of failed to act. And that must have been scandalous. The modern era of like political discourse is uncomfortable with both sidesing things i think generally but do you think that there was ever that kind of discomfort in watching this film and going wow uh we were kind of a lot alike the (laughs) japanese side and the american side in terms of how unable either side was to fully commit to their strategy or their defense or anything like both sides look pretty dumb most of the time in this film for most of this movie it's not an exciting movie 
Right. <laughs> I hadn't remembered that either. Yeah. Like as a kid watching this film, I was like, this is the most exciting World War II film that there is. Yeah. There's... But that's only because I watched the last hour of it. <laughs> there's a very exciting hour <laughs> and there's an hour and a half where you feel like you're in an office building. Yeah. Second film in, in fairly short order that has an intermission. Yeah, right. I love that. <laughs> with Complete with music, like an intact intermission. Yeah. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's but watching it this time, I realized that the, that the heroes of this movie are the Japanese and that this was, that this movie was a huge hit in Japan. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess for the first time ever, I put myself in the shoes of the Japanese soldiers and pilots, especially, and realized like, whoa, Pearl Harbor was really like a world historical victory as far as surprise attacks go. Like, can you imagine how it would feel to be flying over Pearl Harbor with your squadron and look down at all these warships you know, you're not, it's, you're not bombing a civilian population. You're doing, you're doing war on some, on some war. I didn't expect to be exhilarated by the moment where the squadron comes through and they realize they're not being shot at. No, nobody's there. The and radio's it's still quiet. playing. And they're just like, it's a turkey shoot. Yeah. Pretty hot. I mean, those, the, the war, the war sequence in this movie is one of the best yeah. you'll ever see. Do you ever strain against, your feelings for who you're I don't know it's like awkward to put it this way but like who you're rooting for at certain moments World War II is so far in the past for me that there are moments in this film where I do feel that exhilaration for a Japanese fighter pilot during an attack on my country and it's difficult to wrap my mind around why I feel that way and if I should feel bad about that, which clearly I should, right? I don't, I don't know. I don't think so, maybe. Is that a conflict that you feel when you watch war films of this kind? I don't I don't naturally I you, you I'm always the Americans. Sure. Um and I think the fact that this the Japanese half of this movie was filmed in Japan in Japanese by a Japanese crew you know the japanese director japanese um camera people you know craft services meant that although i found the japanese performances weirdly stilted especially at the beginning seemed like they were reading their lines off a chalkboard also their heroes they didn't have to do the thing that they would if it were entirely an american production which is make the heroes kind of i don't know slightly sinister colored I think what I'm trying to say is I think an essential quality of a good war movie is not hating the other side. It's somehow trying to reach a place of understanding what their deal is. Like that's the difference between propaganda and a proper war film. Would maybe. you have said that before we did 100 episodes of the- No, I don't think so. Right. I think it takes the reps to get there for me anyway. What do you think, Ben? I don't know. I'm surprised to hear you say that. Honestly, like I think there are plenty of good war movies that don't interrogate who the other side is at all. Like some of the most interesting stories we've seen have just been about one soldier dealing with, you know, a very traumatic event in their life. And it's not about 
you know, this movie is the 30,000 foot view of, of a, a battle. It's like, but, but I think it's, and I think it's, it's really interesting for that. It's really interesting to see a movie that's mostly about guys with a lot of stars on their shoulders, uh, batting different strategies back and forth. But I think we've had very valuable experiences watching war films about an individual enlisted soldier or even civilians that, you know, just a war happened to them. We can't, we have to, I guess, compare this against Pearl Harbor, the movie, mm -hmm. which we all agreed was an awful movie, which I feel like I would rate lower after having seen this film. Right. I couldn't have <laughs> rated it any lower. Yeah. But yes, even so. It's this film is an even greater reason why that film shouldn't exist. But the the relationship in this movie between Genda and Fuchida and how much they love each other and how much Fuchida just loves his job, how uncomplicated the two of them are in terms of the geopolitics, like watching Yamamoto through this movie is such a downer because Yamamoto has the gift of foresight. Yeah. Yamamoto knows that Yamamoto is tied into the politics, the imperial politics enough to know that Japan is doomed basically. And so he can't rejoice in any of this. And it doesn't seem like really any of the admirals can Nagumo right. just, you know, they're just bummed. It's interesting. The visual language depicting Yamamoto throughout the film is like, he's always below deck the entire time or he's resting against a bulkhead like he's he's isolated and buried until the very end after the raid has happened is the moment he finally goes above deck and he can see this wider view that's where he achieves his understanding of what has actually happened looking out at the ocean and yeah. realizing like the ocean i mean i tried to picture that moment to be on the on the bow of a battleship and look out at the or yeah battleship and look out at the at the wide ocean and realize that as big as this ocean is, that it, it's a, it's, it's about to be engulfed in war and it's not big enough to protect you. I like the comparisons that, uh, some of the American brass make about the Pacific versus the Atlantic in terms of size and what a yeah. pain in the ass the Pacific is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you never get enough. I mean, that, that's a, one of the things that makes this movie boring, but also interesting. They don't ram it down your throat, but you understand the logistical problems that the American side faces. You, you, you get that feeling of like, we just don't have enough gasoline to do what right. you're asking. Yeah, we need 180 planes, but that many haven't been manufactured. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. And and so when when uh, when Pearl gets bombed and everybody's scattering, there was a part somewhere in the back of my brain. I was like, "Oh, all that gas! Boy, that's gonna take <laughs> gonna take a long time to build up those gas stores." Right? Oh, you're gonna have to rebuild that, fellas. You know, like just the logistical, uh, not not nightmare, just the 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 challenges. And you don't usually feel like the logistics are a character in a movie. But yeah. on the American side, especially. That's why my guy is logistics. <laughs> Your guy is three pallets of sea rations. <laughs> I can't even believe it. Pat old coffee. Speaking on that logistics, like I loved all the maps in the film. They're, like it's a great map film in general. And one of the, one of the hero maps is when they like swipe the silk uh, covering off of a three dimensional 
map of Pearl Harbor to show all the pilots and you really understand like what they're thinking about in terms of like, oh, those ridges are going to be like the, the three dimensionality of the map is, uh, you know, important to them. Well, yeah. And they all like they all coo over it. They're I think like, that's yeah. the moment if you're part of that inner circle where you go, oh, shit, this is real. Yeah, like look at this. you went through the work of making <laughs> this 3D model. Yeah, you went to the <laughs> This art is definitely happening. <laughs> and had them knock up a beautiful map, like a museum yeah. piece map. Yeah, and then a little train goes. Tweet, tweet. Yeah. <laughs> but also uh, in the in the secret room in the Pentagon where they're decoding all the Japanese messages to the to the embassy, all of the maps are of the Atlantic Ocean. There's there's one there's one that's a good Pacific map. I noticed that too. And then I then on the wall you see one that's that is just the Pacific. But it- oh, okay, because I I was like, man, these guys are so like you know Atlantic oriented. It seemed like you would want maps of Japan and stuff in the room where you're decoding all the Japanese messages. Well, infuriatingly, they're all Mercator projections, too. And yeah. really big, Mer- you know, like like the worst, the worst version of Mercator. So you just get this, 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 they're so distorted. What's your favorite projection, John? Are you a Peters? I just like the Mercator projection, but turned upside down. Oh, cool. You know, because it really reorients your perspective. You know what I mean? Blows your mind, man. I mean, you just realize, I know, like the earth, it's all arbitrary. (laughs) (laughs) This film has more Futura than a Wes Anderson film, doesn't it? It really felt, it felt familiar to me. Like dead center in the frame, like get those dates and the, and the names for people. The amount of, you know, title carding. I love that. Every single person that arrives on the screen pretty much gets gets their name rank and and uh, job description like superimposed to the to the point that when someone shows up and doesn't have it yeah you're like why do i care about this guy yeah yeah well, get know, this like, guy out of here yeah he's got four stars but he's a nobody kind of reminded me of red cliff like all those all those chinese generals showing up and getting their moment a film tells you how much it cares about its compositions in the title screens. And this is one of those films that that does that. Like very early on, we get our four minutes of credits uh, all shot on the Japanese side. And we get these wide shots, these mediums and these close ups and all of the credits are placed in the frame thoughtfully. They're not just always in the lower third. They're in a in an empty space as we move around the scene over there. And I thought that really, that foreshadowed what we were going to get to come. A lot of really great cinematography happens in this film and it's super thoughtful. But the subtitles, I, uh, my feeling was that it suggested a time when a film going audience would all have read the same newspapers and would understand what the relationship between the secretary of war and the secretary of state and the, uh, you know, like whatever the the hierarchy in Washington and in particular, a lot of these people, the military leaders became famous. And so there would have been plenty of people in the movie theaters that knew all these commanding admirals and generals, knew them by name. They were legendary figures. And so I, it would be easier for people in the theaters to read all those subtitles and, and situate people in a chain of command. Um, whereas I think now, uh, there, 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 even for me was a kind of subtitle fatigue. No, not <laughs> subtitles because we're, because those were 
Yeah. Pretty. You're going to need those. The subtitles for the Japanese section, I felt like, were about 72% of what I would have liked. Because a lot (laughs) of people talk and there's no subtitle. You know, a guy comes in the room and he says like three sentences and then he says the one that the subtitler felt was important. Yeah, it seems like they left out like little formalities and stuff, but I don't know that they're little formalities. I don't speak Japanese. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was like, what What did he just say? It felt like being in a bar with a guy who's like, ah, he's just talking some shit. You're like, no, 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 <laughs> you're the only one here that speaks their language. Now might be a good time to say that this was sort of a split production and all of the scenes depicting Japanese strategy were shot by Japanese filmmakers. And conversely, the American side was shot by an American filmmaker. And you really feel the difference, but it all hangs together as a film. It does. You don't feel it. You don't feel the difference so strongly that you you rebel. And, you know, the Japanese side was meant to be directed by Kurosawa. Right. Yeah. He actually shot a, a little tiny bit of it and then wound up coming off the project. What would that have been like? I think it would have been more interesting had Kurosawa directed the American side (laughs) and shown like the 10 minute reel of an old American captain walking away from a sinking in flames battleship behind him. Just run the hell out of the American side of the film. Super wild eyes. Yeah. Yeah, too bad that, I mean... Who knows what we would have gotten with a Kurosawa version. I would have liked to have seen it for sure. But I don't think we lose in getting the the side that we get here. I think it's really well done. Yeah, it sounds like it was kind of a, like, Kurosawa is an auteur and is not used to, like, sharing the throne kind of, kind of an issue. Uh, and the idea that there was going to be somebody else making the other parts of this movie didn't really work for him. And also the executive uh, running the show, Daryl Zanuck, was like a little bit overbearing and controlling for Kurosawa's taste. There are two supplemental messages. Thank you. I really liked the choice. I felt like it served the movie well. Um, The choice to cast this movie mostly with people that weren't big stars. Like later on, the movie Midway and I apparently they're remaking the movie Midway or they're making a movie about the battle of Midway now, right now. Yeah. It's out. But in 1976, there was a, there was the director of independence day. Is it really the new Midway? Pretty sure. Oh boy. Oh boy. (laughs) Well, we may have to watch, we may have to watch them together, uh, as a Midway double feature. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, the the later Midway is one of those 70s movies where it's a it's basically the longest day, except all the great actors of the 50s are all now. Yeah. And they're in their 60s. David Zanuck is the was the executive who did who produced the longest day. So this, wow. this movie has longest day DNA in it, but they, they took it in a very different direction in terms yeah, of the they, casting. I mean, Jason Ro- when Jason Robards is the t- is the the big name on your production, <laughs> uh, he gets the call sheet and he's like, "This never happens. This is great." <laughs> but it was cool. It was cool. You didn't have to watch uh, aging stars kind of working out their chops. You just got to see right. these people be depicted. Yeah. 
Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks. Every week, myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talking about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Hi, I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the smash hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous. World famous. World, like, stars on the Hollywood Walk. Okay. Second big news. Mm-hmm. The reviews are in. Mm-hmm. Take yourself to Apple Podcasts. You know what you're going to hear? We're happy. It's true. We're a delight. A great distraction from the world. I like that part a lot. So if that's what you guys are looking for, mm-hmm. you got to check out our show. But what else can they expect? We've got dog tech, dog news, celebrities with their dogs, all dog things. All the dog things. So if that interests you, well, get yourself on over to Maximum Fun every Tuesday. <gasps> yeah. A great cast. A really big cast. It's... uh. Too big. Occasionally, somebody will be off screen for like forty-five minutes and then come back, and and I'm just like, man, I can't remember what this dude does. <laughs> I know he's got great eyebrows, but I don't really remember what his job is. I think that big cast, lots of characters thing is related to that point you made earlier, John, about like, is this film for people who have all this stuff cold, who understand the trivia in a way that like JFK assassination academics have you know like oh yeah there's that guy and he's talking to that guy just like i thought they would in that hallway like i wonder if if its attention to those details is specifically aimed at those people i mean that's why we spend so much time with bratton i think in this movie because he's the one the hero of world war ii the hero of world war ii yeah because he's one of the only people that that wouldn't have been a, a a guy in the newspapers yeah Right. And he's a full bird colonel, but he's this like junior guy in this movie who's always standing at attention when he's in the room with with any of the big shots. Do you think they almost called this film Bratton Work Sundays? Because <laughs> they should have. <laughs> Bratton never sleeps. But Bratton's the one, right, who's read all the intercepts and he's like, I get it. They're yeah. about to attack. And and the State Department and the, the War Department, they're all just. They're all just too slow. They're too busy golfing. They're and crucially, Bratton was wrong once. He was. He the predicted one the week wrong before. day. Yeah. One week before. I felt so bad for him when he was like, November 30th, it's the day. And I was like, oh, We Bratton. didn't get that scene of Bratton like looking out his office window, like drumming his fingers. Any <laughs> anytime now. <laughs> the thing is, if he had not, I think if he had not made that prediction, the incorrect prediction one week earlier... He would be a hero. He'd be he'd be a known name if he had just right. called it. And I don't think that would have. I think the the fact that he blew it, only, if only by one week, was enough to kind of put him on the dustbin of history. All of the protocol about like how this information is transmitted and and everything. It feels very frustrating watching this movie because we know what's coming, but. 
it also like I was like it it seems pretty sensible like you don't want the guys with the huge fleet of ships out in the Pacific to be like on pins and needles all the time and like hair trigger like hey let's go like let's go take out some Japanese just because like I'm really worried about them you know right you're on alert no you're off now you're on alert it's weird how both sides of the conflict depict that same feeling differently I think there's a comment uh over on the Japanese fleet that's like, hey, our guys are spooled up and ready to go. There is no turning back because they're so ready. And on the American side, there's this, well, you can't just turn us off and on all the time. Like, that's not going to work either. And so I thought that was interesting that the case was true uh, for both sides of this conflict. It's a lot about just like miscommunication and like the extremely dire consequences of that. Like there's miscommunication between the Japanese ambassadors and the American government, but also between the Japanese ambassadors and the like people in charge of Japan and the people deciding whether or not to go to war. Like there are, you know, guys working in telegram offices that, you know, make a totally reasonable call that means that the message isn't going to get there until six hours too late. Like there's so many little decisions like that. And a couple a couple of times, like, you know, somebody somebody gets pilloried for it, you know, like there's the captain in the uh at the in the Pearl Harbor radio room that is like, no, like, you know, <laughs> don't like let, let's like let's double check about this about this submarine thing. Like we, we don't want to tell the Admiral every little thing that comes up. And that guy, you know, gets the egg on his face. But most of the most the of the people doesn't seem like a little thing. No, no, you're right. <laughs> right, but like but like it's in the context of like every piece of information has to be assessed and like you can understand why like some of the time mistakes will be made about like how seriously to take each each little thing. Didn't this feel a lot like 9/11? Like you have all of these administrators working separately processing yeah. these different pieces of evidence, rarely talking to each other. Sure felt that way to me. Yeah, well, it felt like that uh, to the people who were reporting on 9-11 immediately afterwards, who all invariably compared it to Pearl Harbor. This did You're not saying feel this like is a, this isn't a, a new and unique ob- observation from super hot Adam take. Pranica. <laughs> anyway, I would like to po- <laughs> like to point out that uh, that the guy that uh, that portrayed the captain on duty or whatever, uh, who who didn't want to report the submarine was Richard Anderson, who ended up being Steve Austin's boss in The Six Million Dollar Man. Cool. Better, stronger, faster. One guy that does come off smelling like a rose is Admiral Halsey. Yep. Who is high-ranking enough that he can walk around with a cheroot shoved (laughs) in the side of his mouth no matter what room he's in. Yeah. It seems like he could just stand and talk to the president and just be spitting tobacco right on him. (laughs) <laughs> but Halsey is at least given the credit for having the aircraft carriers out of Pearl Harbor. And at the very end of the movie, he's kind of the last, he's the last guy we hear from who's like, let's turn this baby around and get back out there and start, start this war. One of my favorite compositions in the film is the Enterprise cruising back into port between the two black plumes of smoke on either side of the frame. Pretty dark look. Yeah. Pretty Can you gnarly. imagine coming back to port, seeing that, and your Admiral Halsey? Our, our cumulative experience of watching war movies has to include this 
recognition that all these guys, their their whole lives are have been led in preparation to fight a war. So as much as they are shown to be devastated, they're excited. Like, it's on. The thing. Halsey's already been in the Navy by that point for 40 years or something, you know? And now he's got a war. Like, war movies don't really show because it's not heroic. It's not heroic for them to do a fist pump, like a quiet fist pump and go like, "Uh." but Halsey coming into Pearl, seeing the entire fleet laid waste and recognizing that he, it's not the U S he personally has the, is the tip of the sword. And he's also, he's vindicated and he's got to be, just like it's his job to fix this. He's got to be so jazzed because you don't get to be a guy like that without having that attitude. Yeah. I, I, I guess in this movie too, I saw for the first time a lot of just the like base level macho posturing that happens among the high ranking brass. Everybody's like, if you don't have a cherub in your mouth, you're definitely like chewing on your tongue as though it were a cherub. <laughs> And like that, that hard bitten thing doesn't allow you to show excitement. You just yeah. get more hard bit. You get more squinty. The American psycho business card scene. <laughs> yeah, it'd be great to watch a war movie where we could hear the inner dialogue of all these guys who were like, hey, fuck, <laughs> "Fuck you! I've got the carrier now." I got to go return some videotapes. <laughs> As I was watching it, I couldn't believe what I was seeing and how good it looked. It's spectacular what they were able to do here. How do you how do you get thirty A six Texans all painted like zeros and flying in really nice formation? How do you couldn't do it today? You'd have to get every A six Texan in the world. Uh, many of the planes were used in subsequent World War II films, including Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor. Like some planes survived all the way through to that film and were used again. <laughs> wow. Wow. Sure. How many of them can there be? Yeah. Some of those scenes where the where like the airstrips are getting bombed and you see you see planes go from intact like plane that looks like you could actually take it off and fly it around to smoldering pile of rubble and like a guy running in front of it as it as it skids across the runway. There, there, there are stunts in this film that are like best in breed, and I don't think we've seen anything like it. That stunt that you're describing was a blown one. A lot of these P-40s were models rigged to explode and on cables, and that there's a scene in here. I, I wrote down the time code because I think everyone should watch this over and over again. It's two hours, two minutes, 45 seconds during the Hickam Field attack. A P-40 comes in and skids on its wing and then runs into another row of P-40s that were rigged to explode later on. Not then. But they were filled with explosives. And so once this first one hit, it scattered everything else. And all of the stuntmen in that scene are running for their lives, which is why they're 10 feet ahead of the explosions. And running full out. It is (laughs) so scary to watch. Like, awesome. like at, the camera angle is up pretty high, so you can see how close they are. Like, you would you would fake this by putting the camera right uh, at ground level and, like, foreshortening, you know, just in, in terms of, like, 
the the perspective where they look like they are. Uh, but they're it's terrifying. <laughs> they're narrowly escaping a fiery death. The director was so psyched, both because he got that incredible shot and also because no stuntman died. You really think that's what he was thinking? <laughs> what a monster. But the <clears throat> the scene where the B-17 comes in with and lands on one landing gear and then like, you know, the wing goes down and it crash lands. That was that was real. That actually happened. That's the main thing we know about B-17s at this point. That's right. You Every- can't depend on that landing gear. <laughs> no, and you can't crank it down. No. You try and try. <laughs> oh, it's stuck. As soon as he got the crank out, I was like, well, something. Yeah. He's not going to get that landing gear down. <laughs> Bad reputation on that B-17 landing gear. That guy didn't really look like he was trying that hard, though. He didn't, no. You got to try using your feet. It's like breaking breaking loose a lug nut on a wheel. You wouldn't think the co-pilot would go down and help him? Like, hey, double up on that. Yeah. These movies also don't agree with, like, what the gear ratio situation is with those cranks. Because this guy turned it, like, one half a turn and gave up. But in, yeah. uh, in, in Memphis, Memphis Bell, Bell they're he like... spun it it's, for an hour. Yeah, it's like... Uh, it's like the the gear you put your bike in to go up a, a long hill. Maybe they overcorrected the B-17 uh, gear teeth problem. By the, by the time of Memphis Bell? <laughs> yeah. A later model had a different uh, ratio. Yeah, maybe. I wondered how you guys felt watching all these, all these uh, weird airplanes get blowed up. I will always grieve the death of a PBY. And we do see a PBY and the same PBY, I think, killed over and over and over again yeah they just blew one up increasingly gruesome ways (laughs) it's like steve buscemi in in cohen brothers films yeah (laughs) like these days if you find an airplane of that vintage encased in a glacier uh it's cost effective to go melt the glacier and airlift the rusty crashed hulk back to civilization to try and rebuild gotta see if uh captain america's in there right right Whereas in 1970, I think there were still PBYs just sitting around at the end of some airfield. Yeah. It was like, oh, that hasn't started in a while. Let's blow it up in a movie. But they did. <laughs> most of the move, most of the planes that we see destroyed were models, and uh, they didn't actually blow up a whole flight line of P-40s. They sold a bunch of the planes after this film, just like because they were done. Right, seven hundred bucks a piece. Sold them for like three Gs, and now they are priceless. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Priceless movie planes. You want to get in on the ground floor of the T6 market. Yeah, but you know, in 1970, if you'd put $3,000 in just like a general stock fund. Your wife would divorce <laughs> the hell out of you in 1970. It would be over. A uh, An internet pedant noticed something wrong with one of the planes in the film. Would you guys like to hear about that? Is this is this going to be that it's a P40, P40D and it should have been a p 40 There are one million examples of that. Like this Uh was a a model that came out six months after the events depicted. Uh, That's the majority of the of the goof section on IMDb about this movie. But this this uh, this one here caught my eye because because there is only one example of this plane in the film. Uh, Cornelia Fort engaged in flight training in a Stearman Yellow Peril biplane. She was actually flying an interstate cadet monoplane that resembled a Piper Cub. Yellow Peril is an unfortunate nickname (laughs) for that plane at that moment, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> What's funny is that that Stearman that she was flying is the airplane that my dad learned to fly in in the Navy. Wow. Wow. Uh, and the and the A6 Texan was the SNJ, which was, I guess, the Navy's uh, designation of it. This is the, the, we're, we're describing the airplane that is used as a, a Japanese zero in this movie. Uh, but my dad flew those SNJs in his uh, naval flight school. So I watched this movie with him and he was just loving the, he loved all the fireworks. But I mean, of course we watched it together in about 1980. I think it was interesting that uh, the pilot of that steerman, Cornelia Fort, split est her way. She sure did. From away from the squadron. She got out of there. Which is a military fighter aircraft maneuver. Uh, she was a military pilot up until the moment of her death. Really? Yeah, she died in a mid-air accident toward the end of her career, which is sort of a terrible story, but... How long did she live? Many years after this. I mean, I'd have to look it up. Because she really bugged out of there in a, yeah. in a nice way. Imagine the feeling. Like another one of those, just your heart up, you're just flying along, sunny day, and then you look around... And you go, what? The film did a really good job in evoking that feeling, I thought. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's not just that a single zero is behind your biplane. It's that 80 zeros are behind your biplane. And they're right next to you. I mean, they're looking yeah. at you. Yeah. And just not even, they didn't, they didn't feel like she was worth shooting down. The feeling in those moments is something that I think Pearl Harbor very gleefully stole and made a much bigger part of its film. Yeah, but that that just kind of like surreal few moments where the Japanese are flying and nobody really knows what to make of it. That's like ten minutes of Pearl Harbor, and it's like two minutes of this film. But I, I feel like it's more effective for its subtlety in this film. Not even Top Gun could get proximity right. You know, there's yeah. there's realistic proximity depicted in this film in a way that seems from films that came after this one more difficult than you would think to pull off. You just have to have good pilots and actual airplanes yeah. and not be not be shooting people's faces against a green screen. Yeah. But there is some green screen here. It's not great. But no, there's some bad green screen and there's a couple of bad models, but there are some great models. Yeah. Yeah. They hit one plane and the whole shebang goes up in flames. I don't know. How do you guys feel about the, the exhaustiveness of the story that they're trying to tell? Like, were there subplots that you felt like could have been left on the cutting room floor? Did we need to know uh, what every office manager on Pearl Harbor what was thinking and doing at that moment? It really works every little thing in. Like we even see like the, the cook come out and work the, the deck gun. Right. Like, and it, like, that's just a, a silent moment in the movie. Like, but, but it, they really, you know, use the whole buffalo in this film. I mean, you had to put that in because the because a savvy film grower in 1970 would know about him. So they had to have Dory Miller come do his thing. And and I wonder if there were uh, other things that that we would we wouldn't recognize, but that right needed to make it into the film in order to tip the hat to everybody. You could feel Michael Bay's erection at certain times watching this film. Like, oh my God, there's going to be my Affleck and Hart in it. Yeah, like, right. I could build a whole movie around those guys. <laughs> look at that cool convertible they drove out to the airfield in. That's yeah. going to look great. Look at that hangar blow up. I'm going to blow up 10 of them. <laughs> just need to find a way to make that 22-year-old pilot 
have also been in the Battle of Britain and also be a great dancer. It was interesting to read the people who disliked this film. Guys like Roger Ebert excoriated this film and thought it was trash. Super boring, right? I think if you go into this film expecting it to be an action film, you'll be disappointed. This is a tension film. And the way that it builds upon that tension throughout, like how long is it before that first shot is fired at Pearl Harbor? An hour and a half? Hour and a half at least, yeah. By the time you're there, you are just a tightly coiled audience member ready to explode by the time you get there. But you don't feel that it's two movies. You don't feel like it's pre-shooter, post-shooter. Yeah, it's really it, it hangs together. Yeah, I wonder how many of the Japanese characters were also famous in Japan and had famous characters. So some of those standoffs in the in the ready room, where people would you know various like officers would stand up and voice their opinion about something and and be told yeah. to sit down or whatever. Whether or not a, a 1970 Japanese audience would have said like, oh, there he is, you know the the hero of, of Leyte Gulf or whatever. It's surprising how many of these people depicted survived the war. Both Fuchida and Genda lived into the 80s. Yeah. Wow. So they could have seen this movie. I think, you know, Fuchida, who, com- who commanded the, the attack, he converted to Christianity and, became a, and moved to America and became a famous evangelist here. Well, that's too bad. That's kind of a sad ending. He, he lived in Seattle for a while, just telling the story of, um, of, of his conversion. Remember me? I was the guy that bombed Pearl Harbor. But wow. now, now I'm here to tell you about Jesus. You can be forgiven for everything. <laughs> uh, this film depicts everyone except the president and the emperor. We never see them. How do you feel about that? Well, we hear the emperor. We hear the emperor's thoughts in the form of a poem, right? And we know from uh, from our film watching experience that the emperor liked to communicate via poem. <laughs> I love that everybody is like reading into that poem what they want yeah. the, the emperor to want. Yeah, the emperor's let off the hook. It's at- a real the emperor tweeted situation. <laughs> <laughs> We're given plenty of outs for him, right? He he um, he's shown to be kind of a peaceful and a beloved and respected person via yeah. via the way his corrupt officer corps kind of works around him. His his prime minister and Tojo especially. It's pretty wild what a what a warmonger Tojo is made out to be. Yeah, I wondered like in the context of that nine eleven comparison, like. Bush gets dragged for 9-11 a lot, and I for sure have been one of the people to drag him for, you know, ignoring the signs. But this movie does not seem to indict Roosevelt in any way for missing the signals here. It really lets him off the hook, too, doesn't it? And and You do that explicitly when you cross out his name in the, in the pyramid of importance in the intelligence yeah. community, right. He's right? no longer getting the the reports. Yeah. But Pearl Harbor conspiracists have for many years claimed that Roosevelt knew all about it, that, that allowing Pearl Harbor to happen was a pact that he had with Churchill, that... Um, like 
nobody will argue with me about going to war if this goes down. That's right. Airplane fuel can't melt steel hangers. Yeah, right. We're gonna <laughs> we're gonna lose, you know, eight battleships or whatever in order to be able to declare war. Hmm. Um, but also, you know, that the there are plenty of conspiracy theories, right? That Roosevelt like suddenly could walk and walked across the room just to pick up the phone to say kill all those sailors. But what a monster. But it is this is a middle management or a, you know this is a movie about upper management I guess is is what it is. We see we see a bunch of cabinet members, we see pretty much every admiral in the navy. And I don't think I don't think very many of them distinguish themselves as great minds. Great strategic minds, great commanders even. There's a lot of this, uh, a lot of this like, well, I can't really, I'm not going to call the president right now. He's in, he's in the bath. Right. They're like kind of fearful of the, of the president. Yeah. Or just fearful. Yeah. Fearful of, uh, it felt very much like a lot of the decisions were being made because nobody wanted to be embarrassed. Yeah. The secretary of the Navy guy, like seems like a total coward and, and embarrassment is the thing that he fears the most. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, you know, don't come out on the wrong side of a thing. Don't look, but, but, but nobody ever imagines that the worst is going to happen and right. you're going to look like an idiot if you hadn't prepared for something. Kimmel was like busted down to two stars after this and, and he really got pilloried for letting Pearl Harbor happen. And you could say, and I think there's, there's, a, there are a lot of people that do say that he, he, um, was scapegoated. Right, like the the people in Washington needed to needed to place the blame on somebody's shoulders. Right, needed it to be the guy that forgot to bring the the lawn furniture in. <laughs> but but the movie does show a lot, but I think it's probably probably even truer than it's depicted that within any military culture there have got to there've got to be like panicky skies falling reports all the time the trope of the joint chiefs meeting with the president and there's always some general that's like we got to use the nukes now like you know there's right. there's always a depiction of the of the person that wants to have the biggest possible reaction to every piece of news and in this movie they're they're given so much more sympathy than uh than in other films i've never seen anything that big looks like two main pulses adam if if this movie didn't have, like, let's take it out of 1970, because a lot of what we love about it is that it it was made in a time when you could make a movie like this. Like, like a lot of the movies we've seen where part of what makes them spectacular is that they managed to get 3,000 people all in one place at a time. Here you could build Hickam Field and blow it up in a way that maybe you couldn't do now. But take that away, take the kind of trappings of it away. Can you see what Roger Ebert didn't like about it? I think that's what makes his review of this film so surprising is like, I truly disagree with his take on this. I don't see it. I don't know what he was thinking. Other than the idea that he was prepped for something that did not happen, that he didn't see. He was expecting something that he didn't get. Is, is the only explanation that I can come up with. Do you think that this, if you were to transplant it entirely onto Michael Bay's film and in only 
improving or replacing whatever production value you could for a film made in 2001. Like, everything remains the same. You're using character actors in these roles, like the story's the same, where excising the love triangle from the Michael Bay film. Like, do you think a modern audience could have the attention required to appreciate a film like Tora, Tora, Tora today? Or was Michael Bay forced to fill what would be a 90 minutes of administrative people arguing over administrative things and Tora, Tora, Tora with the Affleck love triangle of 01? There, there are a lot of things about this movie that I don't know if you could get it greenlit. In particular, to make a movie with 25 main characters, maybe more, and no name actors. So it's, it's going to be an ensemble. It's going to be your Ocean's Eleven, except not only do you not have a Brad Pitt, you don't even have a Don Cheadle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or your Don Cheadle is Jason Robards. Um who was a, obviously a great actor, but but like a bit. I am I'm positive in the history of the English language that combination of words has never been put together. <laughs> uh, so you know a sweeping epic that has no star, where the where the star is the history, a history that's that's shared enough, well known enough that you can make an entire film about something. We all know what's going to happen. There's nobody that went to see it that was like, so what happens? What ends up happening? I left at the intermission. <laughs> um, I like the part where Jack and Rose fuck in that car. <laughs> there is no American hero in this film. That's what sucks so bad about Pearl Harbor is that, that there are these guys that just sort of, for the most part, didn't even exist that, are jitterbugging their way through that three-hour monster that are meant to what? Like hold our hands through it? From here to eternity shows you what American troops were doing on Pearl. They were having <laughs> love triangles. They were fucking right. a lot. I think between From Here to Eternity and this movie, both of them like portray the quote-unquote sleeping giant of America in a pretty coarse light. That is a, I'm glad you brought that up because Pearl Harbor makes the case that that was a real quote that Yamamoto said. And the sleeping giant. The sleeping giant quote. Tora, Tora, Tora goes even further in making it seem like a quote because you see him say it on screen and then they put it up on screen in a, in a title card with quotes around it. Yeah. But it's Just not a quote. in case you missed it. Yeah. It was written for the film. Huh. It's uh, there's no evidence to prove that Yamamoto made this statement or wrote it down, according to Wikipedia. It's a great quote. It's a nice quote. You can understand why it's become legend. I feel like if he had said, I feel like we could workshop it, though. Yeah, let's yeah. punch it up. If we, if we said, we just woke up a sleeping gorilla. Mm. America is the 400 pound, no, 800 pound, 1200 pound gorilla. <laughs> <laughs> and you just dangled a banana in front of it. What do you guys think? Nothing makes a gorilla angrier than that. <laughs> More American, John. Uh, uh, like the and the gorilla maybe has a hamburger in yeah, one paw and, and, a, a, and a, gun a gun in the, in the other. other. Yeah, uh, <laughs> hamburger, hamburger. Yeah. 
Maybe two hamburgers in one pot and two guns in the other? No, no, no. A hamburger and a gun in both hands. And a bandolier uh, of hamburgers around his chest. <laughs> we just woke up the hamburger gorilla. <laughs> bang, a, bang. You know what I want to see? I want to see the last frame of Torah, 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 and the quote at the bottom being, we just woke up the hamburger gorilla in Futura, <laughs> in the lower third. <laughs> <laughs> yeah we gotta do that <laughs> you're listening to friendly fire the dumbest war movie podcast you could be listening to episode 100 <laughs> happy birthday guys <laughs> you know we've been comparing this film a lot to michael bay's pearl harbor though it is a stated practice that we do not compare war films to one another true uh, one of the ways that we do that is by using the technology of specific customized rating systems for each war film that we discuss. For Torah, 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 uh, there are many objects that could be this system, but only one that I deem perfect. And that occurs during the... I think maybe the biggest tangent in the film occurs with uh, with Kramer just driving around with his wife visiting a bunch of people uh, who aren't happy to see him, quite frankly, are irritated that he's shown up on their doorstep while they're either partying or trying to sleep. Kramer's got news to give them, but they're not trying to hear it. And along for the ride is Kramer's wife, uh, who's great, Yeah, who's only asking questions. <laughs> they don't show him divulge any like, state secrets to her, but you can tell that over the course of that drive, yeah. he let a lot slip <laughs> yeah they are really close in a fun way and they're also sniping at each other in a very realistic way you can tell they have a loving marriage yeah it's just he's having a really bad day yeah yeah she's gonna let him t tell her to shut up and drive how they manage to convey that communicate that because he's nothing but a bitch to her yeah on that whole drive yeah but she's got you know she just takes it all and and keeps on driving it's a great little relationship we get, I feel like, 10 minutes of this scene of just we're together with them in the car and we're running errands with them. And I think she is the... She gets him a hot dog. Most significant <laughs> female character in the film is Mrs. Kramer. And one very important thing happens. Lieutenant Kramer gets hangry, like I think we all would. He does. On a night like this. And... I think he's a lieutenant commander. In a moment Thank unseen... Mrs. Kramer goes and gets hot dogs, a hot dog for her husband, because she knows. And a pop. She knows that, that he can't function this way. He's only going to get angrier at her. This is a self-preservation yeah. hot dog more than anything, maybe. But it keeps him going. Crucially, she gets it without mustard so that he won't mess up his uniform for if he happens to meet with the president. The best kind of hot dog. You hot. could... Yeah, plain hot dog. You could argue that the core of the film is how much comfort you're willing to sacrifice to do the right thing. There are a lot of people in administrative buildings unwilling to make those sacrifices, to step out of their lane, to give a report that might be an uncomfortable one to give to someone above you. I think one of the one of the compositions most emblematic of this is like the very first officers to witness the air raid at Pearl Harbor flee into the administration building, the very place that failed them. 
And so back into this car between the Kramers, you get Mrs. Kramer giving her husband this hot dog. And this is a moment like that. Like they're both very uncomfortable. And she provides him comfort through a hot dog and a bottle of Coke. A delicious plain hot dog. Hey, sometimes you go to war with the hot dog you have, John, (laughs) not the one you want. And so on a scale of one to five hot dogs, we will rate Torah, Torah, Torah. I think we could have gone on for hours talking about how great the rate is. That could have been our entire show today. But I think the degree to which you enjoy this film depends on if you can ride for that first 90 minutes. And whether or not you see it as the extrusion of a great tension that is realized in this catharsis of the air raid or not, this film drove me crazy for those 90 minutes. You're seeing 20 people in positions of power and authority who could do something if only they were willing to get a little uncomfortable. Fucking my pet goading around their administration building. (laughs) (laughs) getting it wrong and not doing anything. And I'm shocked that this film wasn't more controversial when it came out because we joke about it early on about like this being the, uh, the Colonel Bratton hero film. Everyone looks bad except for him. Maybe Halsey looks good, but like, how do you not come out of this film in 1970 and not like, Go to Capitol Hill with some hearings. The answer is you're already fighting Vietnam. Well, you you go across the the theater and go in to see MASH. Right. There's a lot going on in 1970. No, people are too full of hot dogs to have the kind of appetite to relitigate a Pearl Harbor at the time, I imagine. Anyway, uh, that first 90 works for me, and it's why I feel comfortable giving the film the four and a half hot dog treatment. I was nervous to see this film again because it had been since I was little that I'd seen it. And, you know, I read the Ebert review and I was like, oh, no, what if adult Adam, what if this this is another one of those films that adult Adam kills that child Adam used to love? And I am happy and relieved that it was not the case this time around. So big score from me. What about you guys? I'm, I think it's a five hot dog movie. I think uh, from a storytelling standpoint, I found it very interesting. I, I think that like, I think using the whole buffalo was effective in this movie, showing you every little, every little opportunity that information like found to to get to somebody was interesting, and also the times when it was stymied in some way was interesting, uh, and. From a from a filmmaking standpoint, it is spectacular. Like, yeah. I I don't think we talked enough about what a beautiful movie this is. The uh, the cinematography. I think there were four cinematographers. There were th- three Japanese and one American cinematographer on this, but they somehow between them made a movie that feels cohesive and is just stunningly beautiful at times. I mean the the sequence where the Japanese uh, airplanes are taking off. Yeah, that red sunrise is amazing. One of the most beautiful things that has ever been captured in a motion picture, I think. Did you read about how they did that? I did not. They were sailing to Yorktown from San Diego to Hawaii to film the movie. 
and they'd loaded it up with these zeros made out of A6 Texans. And they flew out over the horizon from San Diego and launched all these planes at dawn. But none of these planes had uh, arresting gear. So they all just flew back to San Diego and then they steamed the Yorktown back to San Diego and loaded them all back on the on the flight deck and <laughs> sailed to Hawaii. What a Tony Scott wow. thing to do. I know. Talk about 20 grand to turn your boat around. Yeah. <laughs> wow. A five hot dog film for me. I, I uh, could have eaten five hot dogs watching it. I was engrossed. As it happens, I was eating carne asado tacos. Ben, do you think that that shot exists in a modern film that is so dark and so red, like there were parts of that sequence where you couldn't really see the planes. I couldn't see anything for even for a part of it. That's why it was effective to me and yeah. and unique. That helped it because yeah. it, it, it makes you understand like every part of this is risky, including just the way we're taking off. It's a gamble down to every element and and still they did it. It was neat to be lost in a frame that like that as a viewer and- and for that long. To decipher that, yeah. Well, and the greatest thing about it was the continuity of that sunrise. Yeah. Like, the emperor is the poet of the film, but it's Fachita, too, because he's the one that appreciates the rays of sun coming through that cloud. Yeah. He's really enjoying every part of this. Fachita's living his best life, or at least he thought he was, before he found Jesus. Right. <laughs> Before he heard the good news. Can you imagine? Can you imagine like, well, I've already bombed Pearl Harbor. Not much else <laughs> is going to happen in my life that's worth a shit. And that's like, oh, except. <laughs> oh. I'm Commander Fuchita. You might know me as the guy who dropped bombs at Pearl Harbor, but now I'm here to drop the good news. To drop the biggest bomb of all. <laughs> at least it didn't make like uh, infomercials about how he's going to teach you to make big money flipping houses and real estate deals. Yeah, it could have been worse. They would today. I guess. Well, you know, I get asked a lot and have over the years been asked a lot um, to recommend books or films that would help somebody who had a brand new interest in military history or who was ready to go a little bit deeper. You know, what's a good survey or what's a good entry point? And this is an example of a movie that if you didn't have any knowledge of Pearl Harbor... If you didn't have any knowledge of of World War II and you wanted to start somewhere learning about the Pacific, uh, this would be a movie to recommend, certainly. Although, like a lot of books that try to give you the whole picture, there are an awful lot of names to remember. At one point, the Secretary of State says, I'm punting this to the Secretary of War. This is your problem now. And it's like, whoa. I'd like to watch that explored a little bit more. But but this is a this is a survey that for someone that already knows a lot about uh Pearl Harbor, there's a lot of redundancy in it. For someone that doesn't know anything about Pearl Harbor, it's a little overwhelming. So this is a movie that's kind of in a sweet spot for people that know the story but don't know its complications. And for people that maybe know it from one perspective but haven't considered it from another. Um, and I agree that it's beautiful. There are points that we've watched some movies that were this long that were just straight up boring. This movie's never boring, but on that 10 minute long car ride around Washington, 
<laughs> that's a that's 10 minutes that would have been on the cutting room floor of any other film. That's got to be first to go. Yeah. That's part of why I pulled the rating system out of that moment yeah. because you you can just tell that's the fattiest part. But it's also like very emblematic of the issue of the film is like he's got the information like he's got the 14th part of the message and nobody considers it to be as urgent as he does. Right, and that's where the tension is reaching its peak. But we spend a lot of time in that code room waiting for those 14 points. <laughs> Wilson's 14 points, except it's except it's Yamamoto's 14 points or Tojo's. I don't know who's who it's coming from. The 14 page exploding paper technique. <laughs> <laughs> I tried that in a cinema studies class one time. <laughs> and did your did your professor die of a heart attack? Didn't care for my paper. Oh. Ben's uh, professor died of autoerotic asphyxiation. <laughs> <laughs> I drive a lot of people to that. <laughs> but I'm not quite I'm not quite up at the five level or the four and a half even. I think it is a four hot dog movie. I think before I talked to you both, I was, you know, I was more inclined to to focus on the the police procedural aspect of it and just felt like what we have here is a movie with a bunch of actors who all guest starred on a couple of episodes of Bonanza and they're basically walking us through an episode of Hill Street Blues but listening to you talk and realizing like no this is a this is it probably it gets an extra half of a half of a hot dog from me um just for its like beauty and scale. So it's a four hot dog movie, I think. And I think it's, but I don't mean that as a criticism. I think everybody should watch it and enjoy it. But anytime you have a movie like this with an asterisk next to it, and the asterisk is don't expect this movie to be exciting. Hmm. <laughs> it's a war movie, but like, you know, settle in because it's going to be, uh, there's a lot of talking. There's a lot of 58 year old white dudes bickering about whether or not to send to kick the memo upstairs and that asterisk i think takes away a hot dog for me you could say that there's a lot of my pet scapegoating going on whoa okay in this story okay <laughs> wild cats <laughs> ben who is your guy there's a uh, scene where they, uh, the Japanese pilots do like a, a test flight over a, an inlet somewhere in Japan that looks a lot like Pearl Harbor just to kind of get the feel for it. And there's a, uh, there's like an old, old dad fishing. And, Motherfucker. Uh, <laughs> this is my guy they, too. <laughs> they, they buzz the geisha tower and the, uh, and this guy is uh, very cranky that they, uh, that they're disturbing the fish. I love that guy. Fighter jacks attract geisha girls, but frighten the fish, he says. I don't think he says fighter jocks, Adam. I think he says Navy pilots. That was that was my interpretation, much like the uh, awakening the sleeping giant. This is my poetic flourish to that scene. For a film with 600 lead actors. Yeah. How did that happen? <laughs> the fact that you two guys picked the same cranky fisherman... Oh, we didn't. Uh, everybody has to have a different guy. So, Adam, who's your guy? Mm. Well, I'm clearly the, the fighter pilot he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I 
attracting those geisha girls and yet and yet disrupting his his chill fishing hang that's me <laughs> that's your legend <laughs> yep what about you john uh when i was in elementary school i loved to go down to the school library and there was a section of war books in the back on the bottom shelf of the library that all had red bindings back and to the left would you they say were, they were back and yeah to the center left <laughs> and so any chance i got i would go to the school library i'm talking about fourth fifth grade and i would go back to this section and i'd pull these red bound books out and i would sit on the floor and i would read about world war ii and it was a whole series of books and all the pictures were in black and white they were all books that had been published in the 50s and 60s that still survived into the, the school libraries of the 70s and one of them in showing what the attack on Pearl Harbor looked like, took a still from the movie Tora Tora Tora. It you know, it was credited as a still. It said, you know, this this scene as depicted in Tora Tora Tora. And it was before I had seen the movie. But the image burned into my mind. And it was um a picture of a sailor firing a fifty caliber machine gun from behind some sandbags at some zeros as they as they strafe bombed Hickam Field. And so the first time I watched this movie, I had forgotten about the book and when the when the scene came on the screen when that when the frame passed by, I saw it because it was so bur- I'd read this book a hundred times and it was burned in just the frame. And as it went by, I was like, oh, you know, I had this like moment of recognition. And so this time watching the movie, when we got to that part of the film, I, I, I watched for it. I can still pick out the frame. And it's later on, you know, the Hickam Field's been, been um, strafed a dozen times in this film. By the time we get to this, it's sort of toward the end of the raid. And there's just a, a single soldier. I guess he's not a sailor single soldier there who's manned this machine gun from behind a little bunch of sandbags. And he's just shooting at every plane that goes over. He's just like wild shooting and he swings around and you see his back and he's, you know, he's got the, the planes are there. You can see them in the frame too. And he'll always be my guy from Tora, Tora, Tora. Good guy. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's the uh, time of the show where we have to find out what we're watching next, unless I'm mistaken. Let's see here. Where's our... My guy is this 120-sided die. (laughs) He's my 120-sided guy. (laughs) I love that guy. Here we go. Fourteen. Number fourteen. Jumps us 17 years forward in terms of release date and a couple decades forward in terms of war. It's a Vietnam War film from 1987, directed by John Irvin. It's Hamburger Hill. Hmm. Or to John Roderick, Hamburger Hamburger Hill. Hamburger Hamburger Hill Hill. (laughs) Uh, This is interesting because this movie came out right in the sweet spot of war movies for me. I was 18 years old. It was a Vietnam film, but I didn't see it in theaters. And for me not to have seen Hamburger Hill in theaters, I don't remember why, 
I don't remember why I didn't see it. Because you were seeing uh, Platoon or uh, Full Metal Jacket, which were the bun that this is the meat for in uh, in a couple of years. I, I My sense of it at the time was that this was a, a lesser one of those. Uh. That there was a whole spate of... I mean, that's not shade to say a third war film isn't as good as Platoon, Platoon or... Full Metal Metal Jacket. Jacket. Although somebody tweeted me the other day and they were like, I finally watched Platoon. It's not that good. It's the the least good of the three. I was like, all right. I mean, you know, your opinion is not even worth muting. I'm just going to let it hang there. Twist in the wind. Because that would burn a calorie. (laughs) 1987 is a weird in-between time to be making a Vietnam film, too. That's what I mean. It kind of feels like it's playing catch-up a little bit. The other 1987 movie we have watched for this show is Predator, so... Huh. Right. Culturally, we were moving on. But uh, I'm looking forward to watching it and hearing what you guys think. So that'll be next week on Friendly Fire, and we'll leave it with Rob's from here. So, for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor go the spoiler alerts. Listen to me! Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast, hosted by Benjamin Harrison, Adam Pranica, and John Roderick. It's produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. Friendly Fire is made possible by the support of our listeners, like you. And you can make sure that the show continues by going to MaximumFun.org donate. As an added bonus, you'll receive our monthly Pork Chop episode, as well as all the fantastic bonus content for Maximum Fun. If you'd like to discuss the show online, please use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John is at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks. We'll see you next week. Fun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.